Father in heaven, we are anxious to hear from you. We believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you, you use the, the means of grace of preaching to build up your people, to nourish us, to stir our hearts, to bring great conviction of sin, to challenge us, and at the end of the day, to remind us of the gospel of Jesus. Lord Jesus, you, you're the centerpiece of this text, and so would you stand forth this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. We're, we're not just looking on to an ancient account, but we want to see you um, come forth through these pages into the sanctuary and, and address us right where we are here uh, this date. And I, I pray, Lord, that we would walk away changed, that we would know that we have met with the King. Come and teach us now through the preaching of your word and, and change us and transform us and build our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this time it's my joy to invite you to open a Bible to the gospel according to Luke. It's chapter 7 and beginning in verse 36. Uh, If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles found uh, underneath the seats, the entire text is found on page 864 in those red Bibles, 864. The Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Well, it has been 34 days since I last preached a sermon in this pulpit. I'm not counting or anything. 34 days. That last Sunday was was July 23rd, and today is Sunday, August 27th. As I mentioned, as I was coming to the end of my, my time uh, with, a, with a break from preaching uh, during our pastoral prayer last week, I, I cannot even begin to tell you how very grateful I am that we are all a part of our church where, where a number of gifted individuals have the opportunity to open God's Word and to preach and teach uh, through the public ministry of the Scriptures. Um, one of those is, is back with us today. We're grateful to see Seth and, and Brianna with us this morning. Um, the time away from preaching that I have enjoyed um, has afforded me the opportunity to do a number of different things. And, and one of those, as I, I believe I made allusion to last week, was to chip away at the exam portion of preparation for certification in the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, or ACBC for short. Um, these last weeks in particular have been incredibly fruitful for me as I've studied and as I've written. I had a chance to go to a biblical counseling conference, in fact, last week, which, which greatly helped me. Um, suffice it to say, I am nothing short of thrilled about the direction that our church is headed with our vision, particularly as it relates to biblical counseling and our desire to launch a counseling center. I have never been more confident that this is going to happen. Um, In view of CARES certification, which finished this time last year, and a number of others of us pursuing this goal, you have Andy, Matt, Ashley, Guy, Brenda, Kevin, Stephen, and perhaps others will join us in the days ahead. Um, I have such a strong sense that the Lord is deeply at work in this church, uh, creating a a corporate burden for the care and cure of souls, in other words, for counseling. Um, We have in this church a a rock-solid assurance that the gospel, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. When we say salvation, we mean that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the comprehensive rescue for our lives, no matter what kind of battles that we find ourselves facing. 
from grief to depression to anxiety to addiction to marriage to parenting to everything from from suffering to sinning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the explosive news that through the Holy Spirit, mediated through the Scriptures, God brings us help, He brings us hope, He brings us healing and transformation, genuine transformation for our lives. We believe that as a church. And better yet, we're seeing the fruit of that among us over these last several years. Lives are being changed among us. So friends, we are becoming a church of biblical counselors. So let's always take our cues from the wonderful counselor. We are becoming a church of biblical counselors, so let's always take our cues from the wonderful counselor. Now, the the ancient prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we learn that the first identity, the very first throne name that's given to Israel's Messiah is just that, wonderful counselor. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Scratch that. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Don't you love that? Don't you need that? I do. In our story in front of us today, we have an account where we see Jesus as counselor, Jesus as soul care physician, front and center. This morning, uh, the first thing we'll do is just read the text from front to back. Second thing that we'll do is just get a sense of the setting and of the rising action as we um, get a sense of the original context and what, have, what this message would have meant for first century Christ followers. And then we'll close with a handful of applications for us here in 2017 um, and their shattering importance for us as we move toward this vision of becoming a church rich and wise in the care and the cure of souls. So would you follow along with me? I'll read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house. He took his place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. So our story begins in verse 36, where we are informed that Jesus is invited to be the dinner guest in the home of a Pharisee, a Pharisee named Simon. Now, we've, we've bumped into the, the Pharisees already in our study of Luke's gospel, chapter 5, uh, chapter 6, even last week in chapter 7, we made mention of the Pharisees. Pharisees, you may recall, were a particular party, a particular sect within Judaism that held considerable influence. They were known for their scholarship. They were known for what appeared to be their piety, their godliness. They were the leading sect, the leading religious group within the Judaism of Jesus' day. And that made them the watchdogs, if you like, of contemporary practice and theology. And it's particularly Jesus' theology and practice that has them scratching their heads a little bit as we've been moving through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus openly claimed to forgive sin on a number of occasions. Um, He has drawn heat from the Pharisees with regard to his views on fasting, his views on the Sabbath. Uh, They were concerned about the company with which he kept. So to say Jesus was in hot water with the Pharisees might be stretching it at this point a little bit, but Jesus is stirring the pot deliberately. The jury is out on Jesus of Nazareth, and one particular Pharisee named Simon wants to get a closer look, and what better way to do that than invite him to his home where he can see him operate a little more closely. Maybe an invitation to dinner is just what Simon needs to make up his mind about Jesus. So Jesus accepts, right? Verse 36 tells us that our Lord went to the Pharisee's house, and in verse 37 it says he was reclining at table. Now, built into that little phrase, reclining at table, as I've mentioned before, as we've taught on this topic, is just a whole other world of practice in the first century. Um, Reclining was a standard way that one would have typically eaten a special meal, not just any meal, but a very special meal in the ancient Near East, where a family meal would have generally been signaled by folks sitting upright and eating the meal. Um, The language here speaks of a public banquet. Um, each person in this case would lie on his side facing the table, feet angling out behind him. The dinner was a public event. It was a banquet. So within a split second of hearing the phrase reclining at table, any listener in this culture would have known exactly what uh, Luke was getting at. Jesus and Simon the Pharisee were about to engage in what's known as table fellowship. Uh, To share a meal in the ancient world like this was to share a life. This was social intimacy of the highest order. So Jesus is under significant scrutiny at this point by the Pharisees, and and he accepts this invitation to a rather public banquet in the home of a person who probably has less than pure intentions by the invite. It's remarkable. This meal was so public that likely the door just would have been left open so that people can come in and be a part of this if they want. Um, Uh, Folks may have lined the perimeter of the table around the room so they could listen in on what was going on in the conversation. And that, of course, makes perfect sense of why verses 37 and 38 happen as naturally as they do, right? Because we're told at one point a woman comes in rather unexpected during the meal. Uh, This woman steps in to be a part of the action. 
Now, we're never told her name. We guess sort of throughout the Gospels as to who this might have been. I'm not sure that she's ever exactly named anywhere. Um, But this woman does have a one-word description in this text a couple of different times. That word is sinner. Luke doesn't even tell us what she's guilty of. Um, We can speculate she might have been a prostitute. She might have been a debtor. She could have been an adulteress. She might have been all three. It's difficult to know. What is very clear is that this woman's reputation precedes her. Simon knows who she is. Jesus knows who she is. Verse 37 tells us she was carrying an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, every indication that we have from the text is that this is an incredibly expensive perfume that would have been held in some sort of a stone or a glass jar. Uh, Verse 38 describes the sequence of events. Just four items here warrant our attention. First, her tears. Verse 38 says she was standing behind him at his feet weeping. So she doesn't come face to face with the Savior. She comes face to feet with the Savior. Every indication in the text is that this is an incredibly expensive perfume here that she's um, about to anoint him with. Now, on his feet, the, the feet in the ancient Jewish culture, of course, were, were dirty. Nothing that happens around the feet is considered clean. And as you know, most roads would have been unpaved. They enjoyed nothing like we have here in the 21st century. And so throughout the course of the day, the, the feet just become hopelessly soiled and foul. And the first thing this woman does is cry tears on his feet. Now, it would have been customary, a small basin full of water along with a towel would have been pretty standard operating procedure that you'd offer to your guest who was coming into your home to get freshened up a little bit when they come in off the road, standard in first century Judaism. And Jesus' feet are being washed here, but instead of a basin full of water, the source is eyes filled with tears. Her weeping here is, is, a, is actually a really big deal. Luke uses a major league word that typically is used of rain showers in the New Testament. Uh, It's the same term that James uses in James 5.17 to describe rain showers. This woman is sobbing uncontrollably. They can't ignore this. Secondly, in verse 38, the tears that fall on Jesus' feet are wiped away with her hair. The the reference is that she uses her hair as as a towel, a makeshift towel of sorts. Luke is probably making note of it because of the fact that a woman letting her hair down like this in public would have been considered culturally immodest, certainly by this Pharisee's standards. Third, in verse 38, she begins to kiss the Lord's feet. Now, while a single kiss on the cheek, again, uh, would have been a, a normal greeting, this woman's kissing of Jesus' feet signals to us that she doesn't consider herself worthy of even offering him this, this greeting. In fact, the verb kissed here in verse 38 is the same one that we find in the parable of the prodigal son when the father grabs the son at the end of the driveway and begins kissing him. Um, This is not a single peck on the feet, in other words. This is intense emotion being explained. In fact, verse 45, Jesus gives the impression that she kissed his feet over and over and over and over again. Finally, verse 38, she pours out the contents of her jar on Jesus' feet. Now, we don't know how large the container was, um, but some commentators suspect that this one act might have cost her up to a year's wages. This is an expensive act of worship. So her sobbing, her wiping of her tears with her hair, her kissing and anointing of Jesus' feet, all of this is enough to just derail the course of the evening. Uh, All eyes are on this woman. What this woman has done changes the whole dynamic between Jesus and Simon. That, in a nutshell, is the, is the story. That's the setting. 
So all that remains is just to see how these two central figures react. What does Jesus think of all this? What did Simon think? What does this mean for you and me? And what does this have to do with counseling? Now, the answer to that last question is everything. (laughs) Counseling's about what the Bible's about. The Bible's about what counseling is about. Counseling is simply how we apply the Word of God to the problems of everyday life. And here in front of us, we have a fascinating case study. So let's just draw three basic principles from this story. We'll allow them to speak right where we are to us this morning. Everyone in this sanctuary today is in this story. The question is, where are you at the table? God has designed this passage of the Bible not so that we would observe it from a distance, but so that we would, we would enter into it. Let's find ourselves spoken to powerfully. First point today, first application point today. Spectacular sinners often make for fantastic counselees when they experience Christ's forgiveness. Spectacular sinners often make for fantastic counselees when they experience Christ's forgiveness. Verse 37 says, she was a sinner. In verse 39, we're told from the vantage point of Simon anyway, she is a sinner. Yet by the time we reach verses 47 and 48, we have Jesus' authoritative verdict pronounced over this woman. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So this doesn't seem so much the behavior of an individual who is seeking forgiveness as much as it is the behavior of an individual who is responding to forgiveness. When Jesus says in verse 47, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much, he's not communicating that her love for him served as the ground of his acceptance of her. Not at all. Rather, her love for him is the evidence of his acceptance of her. Verse 50 makes it plain as day. He said to the woman, what saved her? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. This is a gospel story from first to last. She is saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And her love for him in the context of this meal is the clear affirmation of it. Now, I recognize that our church is only on the front end of our journey into the world of of biblical counseling, but even given our limited exposure, I have found this principle to be true. Spectacular sinners often make for fantastic counselees when they experience Christ's forgiveness. I've seen it in my office. I've seen it in community group life. I've seen it in my neighborhood. And I've seen it with our friends at Redemption House in Minatrista. The gospel message is uniquely suited for those of us in this world who just find that the bottom has absolutely fallen out of our lives. The gospel is such sweet, sweet music for a person who is desperate for change, who is tired of sin, and is looking for a way out. One of my favorite pastors likes to say, the gospel is not a help-wanted ad. It's a help-available ad. 
And I'll tell you this, many of the finest counselors that I know today are folks who at one point in their lives found themselves right where this woman is in this text. So not only do forgiven spectacular sinners make for fantastic counselees, uh, forgiven spectacular sinners given grace and truth and time, they make for fantastic counselors. Isn't this the vision of the New Testament? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's the end game of gospel transformation. The point of biblical counseling is not endless, ceaseless, perpetual therapy. No, it's not. The point of biblical counseling is to so know the God of all comfort in all of our affliction that we may offer that same comfort to those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's our mission as a church, to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? And just a word about those of us here in the congregation who are currently, you just feel beset, you just feel sidelined by some sort of suffering or sin. Please understand, God is not just a good God and a merciful God and a gracious God. God, in point of fact, is a sovereign God. God is in control. He is designing your life for your good and his glory. By that, I mean he is totally in charge of what you're going through. Whether you are a victim or a perpetrator or in reality a rich mixture of both, because we all are. God has plans. God has a thousand purposes for the pain that you find yourself in. And one of those purposes is that you might, by His grace, find help and hope in the gospel so that you might, in turn, offer that help and hope to someone else. Now, um, the text does not explicitly say, but we'll learn next week in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, that a number of women who had had, let's just say, colorful backgrounds had their lives transformed by Jesus and became a a part of a a cadre of people who began to bankroll his entire ministry. Talk about a repurposing of your life. That's next week. So in some sense, the greater your sin or suffering, uh, the better. (laughs) Years ago, I read an author who wrote these words. We are, each and every one of us, insignificant people whom God has called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will not look us over for medals or diplomas or honors, but for scars. To those of us with scars among us here this morning, particularly scars on your own soul, brought on by your own sin, if you have grief and sorrow over your sin, And if your great desire is to turn from it and renounce it and move definitively toward Jesus, I say to you on the authority of Holy Scripture, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Go in peace. Spectacular sinners often make for fantastic counselees when they experience Christ's forgiveness. Second point of application today. Conservative Bible believers often make for very poor counselees when they stumble over Christ's forgiveness. 
Conservative Bible believers often make for very poor counselees when they stumble over Christ's forgiveness. Irony is all over today's passage. It's just dripping with irony. I'll tell you the truth. I'm honestly not sure what the greater shock in this story is supposed to be. That this wildly sinful woman repents and is forgiven is stunning. But what is equally, if not more astounding, is the lack of common cultural consideration that is not shown to Christ by Simon. Simon, as Jesus' host, has several opportunities to extend very basic courtesies to the Savior, and he blows it each time. Jesus says in verse 44, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Now, there's some disagreement over whether or not this was automatically something that Simon was obliged to provide as a host for his guest. But just judging by Jesus' evaluation of the situation, it's clear that Simon did less than he could have done, right? Verse 45, Jesus says, you gave me no kiss. Now, as I mentioned before, in the case of the kiss, this greeting was standard. This is standard operating procedure in the first century. In fact, it still is today. Many parts of the world, parts of Europe, in Latin America, in the Middle East, the kiss of greeting is, is how we operate. This was customary in New Testament times as well. You kiss your dinner guest. It might, in our culture, be the equivalent of, of not being willing to shake someone's hand as they enter into your house, or it's fall, wintertime, you, you leave their coat on them as they walk in, and you don't offer to, to pick up their coat for them. This is a basic pleasantry, and it was an oversight, in all likelihood, a deliberate oversight by Simon. Verse 46, Jesus says to Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil. That's much like the the first one. Uh, Did he have to anoint Jesus' head with oil? No, he didn't have to. That's just the point. Simon doesn't care. And it's not just basic hospitality where Simon drops the ball. That's actually not the biggest issue here. There are other things that happen in this scene that reveal Simon's heart in a way that he does not intend. For example, verse 39, right after the woman expresses her love for Christ, the text says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 39, it's one of those wonderful moments in the Bible that describes this inner monologue that Simon's carrying on within himself. I don't think he said this under his breath. I don't think he said this at all. Just thinking this in his mind. And based on how he receives this woman, Simon's led to question Jesus' credentials. Another moment of irony. At the very moment that Simon drops the idea that Jesus could possibly be a prophet, Jesus is reading his mind. And it's right here where Simon displays just how blind he really is. When he looks on this woman, he doesn't see a great lover of Christ. He sees a sinner, a filthy person. And when he looks on Jesus, all he can see is a man who's willing to let a person like this do that to him. He doesn't see a Savior. He is totally blind. You know what Jesus said back in Luke 5, verses 31 to 32? It has perfect application to today's text. Luke 5, 31 to 32, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or to use the words of Jesus in our text today, verse 47, he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, does this indicate that this Pharisee had less sin than the woman who had even greater sin? In a sense, yes. I think that's what it, what it means. But since when does having less sin excuse someone for asking for forgiveness from a holy God? Charles Simeon, old Charles Simeon of Cambridge reminds us, we all, though in different degrees, are debtors unto God. No man, however little his sin may be, can discharge his own debt. That's true. True of Simon, true of us. So let's just make the application to counseling now and to our lives. First, with regard to counseling, what Jesus does with Simon here is, in verses 46, 41 to 46, is classic textbook biblical counseling. This is how they train you. He begins with the parable of the two debtors. Jesus tells him a story. He illustrates the drama unfolding in front of him with a, a parable, a story coming from the side so that Simon might get an objective view of what he's already involved in, so that he might help him see his situation a little bit more clearly. And what's fascinating here is that Simon is tracking with the force of Jesus' logic here. He gives him the right answer in verse 43. So on the one hand, he's a counselee with the right answers, which is so sad in view of the fact that he's not changing. He doesn't want to change. He's not repenting. Now, it's especially what Jesus does in verses 44 to 46. That's the stuff of biblical counseling, okay? When you're working with someone in a counseling situation and you're beginning to unpack a particular issue or a particular event in their lives that they want to lay in front of you, it is helpful to begin with questions like this. What were you feeling? What were you thinking when that happened? What did you do? What were you hoping to achieve? How did it go for you? Um, Now, it's amazing, as simple and as uncomplicated as these questions are, most people have nobody in the world asking them these questions. You you try this. The next time you blow it with your family in something tonight, um, just try it on yourself. The next time you put your foot in the mouth, uh, go home. um, You're going to blow it with one of your family members. Just try to begin to Monday morning quarterback this thing a little bit, and you'll be amazed at what you learn about yourself. How was I feeling when I said that? What was I thinking? What did I exactly do? What was I hoping to accomplish again? (laughs) How did that go for me, right? The Dr. Phil question, how's that working for me? You see what Jesus is doing here? This is a brilliant counseling strategy, and I'm guessing it was a mighty convicting exercise for Simon to walk through. Simon, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. What did you do? Simon, from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Did you give me a kiss I can't remember? Simon, she's anointed my feet with ointment. What did you do? What were you thinking? Here's the point, and I've seen it repeatedly in counseling. Conservative Bible believers often make for very poor counselees when they stumble over Christ's forgiveness. Those of us who've been around the church for any length of time potentially stand in the greatest peril here. Many folks, after walking with Jesus just decade upon decade, we begin to plateau. 
It's like we retire or something. There's no retirement from following Jesus. That's dangerous. No one coasts into heaven. If you're coasting right now, you may not be heading toward heaven. I told our community group just last week that I I felt as though this time last year, um, not that I was perfect, but I might have just been bumping my head right up underneath God's standard of that. And then the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes just blows into our family. Isn't that fascinating? And it began to create a sort of environment of dependence, radical dependence of our family on Christ. We shouldn't coast. You know what the goal of the church is, right? Paul states it in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The word mature here in Colossians 1.28 means perfect, by the way. Are you there yet? Simon thought he was. I'm not there yet. I've been walking with Jesus almost 20 years, pastoring over half that time. I've nowhere near arrived. So what's the answer here? The answer to Colossians 1.28, everyone mature in Christ? In one sense, the answer is Colossians 1.29, where Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the answer. God's grace is not only about pardon for sin, but about power for obedience. The answer is also in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, where Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not Simon's frame of reference. And isn't it fascinating? A former Pharisee is the one who gave us that standard in Philippians 3. Paul. In our text, Simon stumbled over the most basic thing of all, the forgiveness that Jesus offered a sinful woman. And truth be told, the forgiveness that Jesus was ready to offer Simon right in that moment, if he would take it. So how about you? Who do you resemble more in this text, honestly? Is it the woman? Is it Simon? Conservative Bible believers often make for very poor counselees when they stumble over Christ's forgiveness. Final application point today, it'll be brief. Number three, like our Savior, we will offer the gift of gospel forgiveness to both, but it's up to each one of them to unwrap it. Like our Savior, we will offer the gift of gospel forgiveness to both, both the the women of the world and the Simons of the world, but it's up to them to unwrap it. We're out of time, so I'll just close with this. When you're counseling another person, and if you don't think of uh, counseling in this way, you you ought to. If if you are in a situation where you care for somebody else and the the progress that they could be making but they're not making in their life, when you're counseling that person, you cannot want their change more than that person does. It's just not going to happen. They're going to have to want that change for them even more than you want it for them. The forgiveness in this text is a great example. And we've dealt with the topic of forgiveness already in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see it again in the days ahead. This is a topic that I am genuinely making just brand new progress in in my life. I'm having new thoughts about forgiveness even this past week that I've never had before, and I look forward to maybe unfolding some of those in the weeks ahead. Um, Remember, um, when we say to one another, I forgive you, we've talked about this already, I'm saying, among other things, I won't dwell on this, I won't bring this up again, 
I won't talk to other people about this, and I will not let this stand between our relationship. That's forgiveness to begin with. Now, the note I simply want to strike here is that forgiveness is also more, it's far more than just a personal strategy to defeat bitterness and hate toward another person. Forgiveness in the full-orbed biblical sense of forgiveness is a transaction that requires both parties. One offering it and the other receiving it. Forgiveness is a gift wrapped up and ready to go in a bow that God offers this entire world. But everyone in the world, one by one, has got to take the package and unwrap it for themselves. Jesus stood prepared to offer forgiveness to both. Don't you see that here in this passage? He was ready. And we will be too. Like our Savior, we will offer the gift, gospel gift of forgiveness to both sorts of people, but it's up to them to unwrap it. More about sort of interpersonal forgiveness in the days ahead as we keep working through Luke's gospel. Let's just review at this point. We are becoming a church of biblical counselors, so let's always take our cues from the wonderful counselor. First, spectacular sinners often make for fantastic counselees when they experience Christ's forgiveness. Second, conservative Bible believers often make for very poor counselees when they stumble over that same forgiveness. And like our Savior, we'll offer the gospel gift of forgiveness to both, but it's up to each one of them to unwrap it. Where are you in this story? Not looking in from the outside, but where are you inside? So friends, as it relates to this, this perspective of 2020 vision on counseling, God is at work in this church. From my vantage point, I spent time with lots of pastors throughout the Twin Cities, other ministry leaders. What God is doing in this church with regard to counseling is unique. That's the only thing I can say. It is unique, and it will be an enormous gift to our church first and to the broader West Tonka community as the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling emerges. This is a foregone conclusion. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but my strong sense is that based on our current state of affairs, I think we're looking at 24 months or less before this is launched. By fall of 2019, I entirely expect that our church will oversee an entirely nonprofit, community-based, church, church-based, community-oriented outreach for the purposes of counseling that we will offer to the West Tonka area, the broader West Metro, free of charge. Freely we have received, so freely we will give. God is calling our church, and in the words of David Paulison, to go deep and hang in long with people. Our culture, most churches are pretty good at short and shallow. We want to go deep and long with people. Change takes time. How fast do the trees grow that are in your yard, right? That's about how fast people change sometimes. So we want to go deep and hang in long with people through biblical, gospel-saturated, spirit-empowered soul care. And here's the thing. Until the day that we have a counseling center, guess what? We are a counseling center. Every church is. The question is, what's the quality of our counsel? How well are we doing it? So God has good things in store for our church today and right around the corner. I hope you sense it with me. And if you don't, just borrow my faith. May my passion affect you about this. We have a faith to proclaim. We have a worthy God to glorify, and we have a church to build up, and scattered all across the West Tonka area, there are sheep, sheep that don't even know they're sheep. They're lost, and they need to be safely tucked into the fold, and we are going to be a part of that in the days ahead as we chase our 2020 vision. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text. 
we recognize, Lord, on mornings like this, that truly uh, the Bible's about what counseling's about. Counseling's about what the Bible's about. We could take any given Bible passage and bend it toward this issue of counseling. And so I pray, Father, that you would make of us a church, men and women, boys and girls, as we hear the word preached, as we hear the word taught, I pray that we would go the distance all the way into our living rooms and our kitchen tables and our cubicles and our neighborhoods with the eternity-altering and soul-invigorating truth that Jesus has come to make all things new in our lives. So would you continue to teach us? We'll follow you ahead. We'll follow, you, we'll follow behind you. Would you get out ahead of us? And would you teach us more about counseling in the days ahead? Launch the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling. We have a vision for it, but you have to do it. We will follow behind in Jesus' name. Amen.